Thank you, Dan and Eric and choir and instrumentalists for lovely worship today. Turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to the churches in the Galatia region. We continue our sermon series at the right time. Galatians 3.19 all the way through 4.31. We'll be highlighting various passages as we go. At the right time. Kay and Randall O'Brien could not remember a more pleasant or leisurely Easter Sunday morning. Randall at that time was pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church. Their daughters, Allison, seven, and Shannon, four, found their beautiful Easter baskets that morning. And, well, they enjoyed a wonderful egg hunt that Sunday morning, followed by the family breakfast. It was all perfect. The girls got dressed, picture pretty, posed for the snapshots, and finally Randall O'Brien retired to the shower to get ready for his biggest service ever in his 10 months there at Calvary Church. It was 7.23 in the morning, almost an hour before the early worship's service and well that's when a blood curdling scream tore through the shower door what dr o'brien had not heard was the ringing of the telephone on the line was milt loftus a deacon at calvary and a choir member deacon loftus said to randall's wife Kay o'brien ask about the minister has he left the house yet Kay said no as a matter of fact he just got in the shower there was a, a pause, a moment of silence, and then Deacon Loftus said in measured tones, Kay, did you all forget to set your clocks forward this morning? <laughs> That's when Ms. O'Brien screamed. There's no point in telling all the frantic details. The best Randall remembers it. Kay stuffed his suit through the door while somebody else started drying his hair. And well, somebody else, maybe the preacher himself, started putting on his socks and shoes. When he finally arrived at the biggest service he'd ever preached at Calvary, the choir was singing one more stanza for 45 minutes <laughs> when he walked in. The minister's parting words to his wife, though it was his first year of the church on the way out, well, his parting words were, where would you like to spend next Easter? <laughs> Unlike Randall O'Brien, who showed up tardy for the resurrection celebration, Paul asserted that Messiah Jesus arrived at just the right time. Paul has previously told us in the first 18 verses that it is faith, it is not the law that saves us. In fact, look there in 3.6, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he tells us that the Mosaic law came 430 years after the covenant of belief with Abraham. And so Paul has already argued that it is our faith in Jesus and not keeping the law that leads to salvation. In fact, he, he tells us over and over again, look at verse 329, that it is the, the true children of Abraham are those who are of faith because Abraham was of faith. 
To be part of the people of God is not to be born Jewish or to obey the law. To be part of the people of God is to have belief. And that belief is counted as righteousness. Well, now having elevated the covenant with Abraham above the receiving of the law, Paul next addressed the question, well, if the law doesn't save us, then why do we go to all that trouble to have all those 613 laws from Moses? What is the law all about? Well, the, the first section here, 319 through 43, the right time for the law. The right time for the law, 319 through 43. Well, under that subheading here, 319 through 323, the law is a jailer. The law is a jailer. Look at 319. Why the law then? That's the question. If Abraham believed and that was righteousness, then why do we go to the trouble? Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. That seems like an odd thing to say. The law was added for sin. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come, the seed should come, that would be Jesus, to whom the promise had been made. Look at verse 22. But Scripture has shut up all men under sin. The law, he's saying, has captured all men to realize that they're sinners, that they're promised by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. First of all, why the law? The law is a jailer. The law demonstrates that we all have sin. Because there is the law, we realize we cannot keep the law, and thus we are identified as sinners. We are, in essence, locked up by God's law. In fact, the word used here for locked up, shut up, is the idea of someone who's hemmed in on all sides, to the left, to the right, to the front, to the rear. The reality is we were absolutely captured. The law had hemmed us in to realize we could not do it ourselves. We were locked down by the law. We had no opportunity to escape. The law had demonstrated that every one of us had transgressed the perfect law and purposes of God. We were held captive by the law to sin. All avenues of escape or salvation were shut down, he says, until the true liberator was to come. Well, look at verse 23. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Well, there's another role the law plays. Not only does it demonstrate that we all need a Savior, but secondly, it's a tutor. Look at verse 24 through 25. The law is a tutor. Therefore, the law has come, our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Jesus. Not only was the law a jailer to lock us all up into our sin to realize that we truly needed a Savior, 
But more than that, the law was also a tutor. A tutor would serve wealthy Greek and Roman families. When a child was not in school, then the tutor disciplined the child, children around six years of age, all the way to 16 years of age and antiquity. The wealthy families had this person who played the role of a tutor, a disciplinarian, supervising the children during that time. Likewise, the law served to discipline the people of God until they were ready at last to receive salvation by faith. Now that faith has come, he says, we are no longer under a tutor. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He tells us in Philippians 3 that he was obedient to the law. Paul, a Pharisee, zealous for the law, keeping the law, being obedient to the law, found himself in following the law, not on a path that was pleasing to God, but rather in his zeal to keep the law. He was going on the road to Damascus to arrest followers of the way. He was persecuting the church. In the process of being obedient to the law, that led him to be a persecutor, an enemy of God. Well, having made clear the role of the law in helping the Galatians by entrapping them to sin, the jailer, being the tutor, a disciplinarian, to lead them until Christ came. Then in, in 328, we get what some people say is the apex of all of Galatians' theology. Look at verse 28. You've been baptized into Christ, 27. You've clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is we are building a new community in Christ. Those who've been baptized into Christ, those who are clothed with Christ, it doesn't matter your social status anymore. The gender doesn't matter. Well, it's level at the foot of the cross, Jew or Gentile. That all of the ground around the cross is absolutely level and one's faith in Christ is what matters. Now, we know he's not saying those distinctions are completely gone because in his letters he continues to address Jews and Gentiles and men and women and even slaves and slave owners. He has a word to say that to them as distinct groups. So the distinctions are there in some ways, but the superiority and the inferiority is no longer there. Baptized, baptized into Christ, well... That deep discrimination in that culture, race and gender and class, there were to be no advantages or disadvantages based upon those criteria. A faithful Jewish male had been taught to awaken and pray every day. I thank God I'm not a Gentile. I thank God I'm not a slave. And I thank God I'm not a woman. Those were 
repeated in Jewish prayers on a daily basis. And so Paul takes those three things that the Jewish male was glad he was not and says it makes absolutely no difference. The barrier is broken down in Christ. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Well, there's a, a third role, role the law plays. The law is trustee. Chapter 4, 1 through 3. The law is a trustee. Now I say, as long as a, an heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, although he's owner of everything. Imagine a child who's just inherited a great estate, but he's too young to, to administer the estate, and so he's, he's under a custodian. But he's under guardians. He's under managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage on the elemental things of the world. The law is a trustee. Before the coming of the Messiah, the people of God were in the plight of a young heir whose father had died. Such an heir was too young to have access to the family estate. Therefore, until he came of age, the minor really had no rights at all. His status in some ways was no better than that of a slave. He was under the control of guardians and trustees who managed the affairs and determined his life. In fact, there's striking language there in verse 3. You're under bondage under the elemental things of the world. The elemental things of the world, the Jewish law, he's comparing to, in the Gentile world, those cosmic forces, those evil forces that place one in bondage. And what he's saying to the Gentile believers, do not submit yourself to the Jewish version of Christianity of the Judaizers from Jerusalem. Don't observe the Jewish calendar. Don't observe circumcision for the sake of Jewishness. What he's saying is this. To put yourself under the bondage of the law once again, though you are free in faith in Christ, is like submitting to the elemental principles of the universe, the elemental spirits that hold one in bondage. So the law. The law is a jailer that locks us up in our sin. The law is a tutor that leads us by the hand to Christ. The law is a trustee that manages our affairs until the right time for the Christ. Well, look what he says. Beautiful verse in verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Second major section is 4.4 through 4.20. The right time for Christ. There was a right time for the law, and now is the right time for the Christ. Our very first Christmas in Amarillo was 1995. We discovered that the star character from the nativity scene was missing. The baby Jesus was nowhere to be found. The house was thoroughly searched. We looked everywhere. We even looked under the couch cushions. Have you noticed when something's missing that the couch cushions just eat everything? Well, ours, ours do too. We looked under the couch cushions and, well, we, we never could find the baby Jesus. And 
Well, Christmas Day came, and our daughter's Ryan was four, and she presented her gifts to her parents. I remember it well. She used a whole roll of tape on each gift, and it was hard to get into those gifts. And then Jordan, age two, gave her gifts, and she gave her gift to her mother, Lisa. And when Lisa opened the present, it was the baby Jesus from the manger scene. Needless to say, we could not bring ourselves to scold a two-year-old for remaining silent despite the missing person's report out on the Son of God. <laughs> Jesus was almost late for Christmas in 1995, but on the first Christmas, in the fullness of time, he was right on time. In the fullness of time, Paul declared the central event of God's dealing with humankind was the sending of his son. And Christ too was born of a woman. That meant he was human. He too was born under the law. That meant he was born into the sphere of bondage by the law. He was a Jew. The good news is that putting the chains of the law on himself, he takes them off of us at the right time, in the fullness of time, the arrival of the Christ child born of a woman, born as a Jew under the law, has freed us from the bondage of the law. Therefore, we're no longer a slave but a son. Look at verse 4. The fullness of time came. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are his sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father. Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That they are no longer slaves, no longer bound by the jailer. But now they are children of God. And as we possess the Spirit of God, we have the ability to look to heaven and say, Abba, Father, the God himself. We have a new intimacy with the Father that we are indeed adopted into the family of God and we are his sons and his daughters. And then he tells us, don't put the chains back on. Look at verses 9 and 10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things? Why are you turning back to the law, which is no better than the demonic forces to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You are observing days and months and seasons and years. You're trying to keep the Jewish calendar, the festival calendar, he says. Why are you enslaving yourself again when the sun has come to set you free? And then he makes a personal appeal. Verses 12 through 20. Look at, verse, look at verse 13. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And that which I, I was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me 
as an angel of God and as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is the sense of blessing you had? For I, I, I bear you witness that it, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Paul is arguing now not as a rabbinic scholar, but rather as a pastor. He says, when I came to you preaching the gospel, I had an infirmity. There's a lot of debate as to what it might have been, epilepsy, or, or some say eyesight. Notice verse 15, he says, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me if necessary. I was having trouble with my eyes. You would have given me your eyes. That's the way you receive me. Why now are you turning away from my gospel, a gospel received from God himself, as was my apostleship, a gospel which says you are free in Christ Jesus and you are sons of Abraham by faith. Why are you going back to the law? It's a personal appeal as he closes. In verse 19, he says, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed within you. I am your father in the faith, Paul says. I am in labor until Christ is formed within you. He closes with that allegory between Isaac and Ishmael between Sarah and Hagar in verses 21 through 31. It's an allegory, and what he says is Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. There was Sarah and there was Hagar. When Sarah could not bear a, a child, then Hagar naturally bore a child to Abraham. But that child, Ishmael, represents bondage to the law. It represents earthly Jerusalem. But the other son, Isaac, he's the miracle child. He represents the heavenly Jerusalem. He is the child of promise. You are children of Sarah. You are, you are like Isaac to God. Don't go back to the law. Mark Upshaw probably would have signed with Rhode Island anyway, he says. He was an outstanding basketball player for the Columbus High School basketball team. And the Stanford coaches sent him a scholarship letter and yet it arrived 21 years too late. The letter was signed by the then Cardinal coach, Dick DiBiasio. It was dated May 1978, but it, it received, he received it, Upshaw received it in 1999. It was a five-paragraph letter inviting him to, to explore a scholarship in basketball with the Stanford Cardinals. It had the stamp return envelope. Obviously, he didn't return the envelope, so they never followed up and offered him a scholarship. He said, now a father of two and, well, 20 years past his prime in basketball, maybe I should mail it in. Maybe I can still get a scholarship at Stanford. Someone asked the consumer affairs clerk for the U.S. Postal Service, well, what happened? David McQuinn the customer affairs, consumer affairs clerk for U.S. Postal Service says, we have no idea. We, know, we have no idea where that scholarship letter was, where it resided, where it was lost for 20 years. Maybe in those mail canvas patches, there was a little fold or a pocket and it got stuck. He didn't know any more than anyone else, but it had it'd been postmarked three times, finally arrived April the 26th, 1999. It was sent in care of the coach of the high school, Larry Os Oswald, who was now dead. They followed up with an assistant coach, and he remembered where Upshaw still was. And, well, 
They called up Shaul, got his wife, and his wife came in telling him about some letter from college, and he said, man, I thought I paid all my tuition. Why is I getting a letter from college? It's too late. He didn't have the legs for collegiate basketball anymore. Too late. Yeah, Upshaw's scholarship letter came too late. But the Christ came at just the right time. The law was a jailer, a tutor, a trustee. It pointed Israel to Christ as it still points us to Christ. It serves as a good moral guide. In fact, Jesus takes those laws you shall not commit adultery, to you shall not lust, and you shall murder, to even you shall not be angry, is still a good moral guide. And, and the law is not abolished in Christ, but rather it is fulfilled in Christ. And as he fulfills it, he takes its curse on the cross, and we are freed from the law. The law came at just the right time. What does that mean? Some people say it means the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, that there was so much peace in the Roman Empire, that was the right time for the Messiah to arrive. Others have said it was the Roman roads that the missionaries could travel, as we'll see tonight in our study on Acts, the, the missionaries could travel, and therefore it was the Roman roads. And others said, no, it was the Greek language. It was the first time the whole world, so to speak, was speaking one language. And so the gospel could flow to, to all nations through the Greek language. I don't know if it was the Pax Romana or the roads or the language but I know it was the fullness of time in the world's empire when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And just like Christ arrived at the right time on that first Christmas, maybe for you today, Maybe someone watching by way of television or maybe someone in this great sanctuary today. Maybe for you today, Christ comes at just the right time. And today is your day of forgiveness. Today is your day of freedom from the law. Today is your day that you acknowledge that he himself received the curse of the law that you might be free. Let us pray. Oh God, we come to you today. Thank you for sending your son that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of God. It is only through that adoption that we're able to look to heaven and cry, Abba, and we become adopted children of the promise. God, Maybe there's someone here today, and this is her day to say Jesus is Lord. Maybe this is his day to say, I need a Savior. Maybe this is their day to say, I need a church home. However you would lead us, O oh God, may we respond to the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.